When visiting the Holy Land, few people venture beyond Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and the Dead Sea, especially into the disputed Palestinian territories of the West Bank, even though it's just next door. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Pamela Olson joins us in a moment to tell us how Palestine fares as a tourist destination for Westerners. She turned a backpacking trip to Israel into two years living and working in the West Bank. But would she take her mother there? You know, I even took my parents there. My mother had never been out of the U.S. before. And, you know, her favorite place of all the places we visited in Israel and the Palestinian territories was Ramallah. And the host of TV's Amazing Race tells us that some of the show's daring challenges stem from his own experiences, like his underwater wedding ceremony. I had a suit on and she had her veil and we renewed our vows right in front of the dolphins and the priest. Phil Kogan explains how travel adventures have changed how he lives, leaving no opportunity wasted. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. One of my favorite reasons to travel is to visit parts of our world that might seem a little complicated and conflicted, especially to us here in the United States. There's nothing like seeing for yourself the daily reality behind what makes it onto the evening news. Meeting the people who live in places that are routinely labeled as troubled or in conflict, and then finding out firsthand what their hopes and dreams are. That's why I'm visiting areas all around the Middle East this year that are outside the typical tourist hubs to replace my preconceptions with human faces and real stories. To help me prepare for visiting the Palestinian territories of Israel, let's bring in Pamela Olson right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She spent two years in Ramallah, which is in Palestinian territory, a little north of Jerusalem. It's considered the unofficial capital of the Palestinian National Authority, and it's where the tomb of Yasser Arafat is. The city's in territory that was annexed by Israel after the Seven Days War in 1967. And while Islam is the major religion there, Ramallah is also home to a significant minority of Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant Christians. Pamela Olson's here now to tell us what it was like for her as an American to live and work in Ramallah. Her book about her experiences there is called Fast Times in Palestine. Pamela, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Pamela, tell us, you lived for two years in Palestine. Just set us up here by talking about what you were doing there, why you went there, and and what it was like to settle in. Well, the very first time I went, it was kind of an accident, actually. I was backpacking from Cairo to Istanbul after college. You know, it was right when the Iraq War was getting started, and I was trying to understand what this region, you know, what you, you feel a little bit misinformed on the news, so, you know, you want to try to find out for yourself what's going on. And for me, it's really difficult to study things or grasp things unless I've seen them first. So I kind of wanted to begin by traveling in the Middle East and actually plan to skip Israel and Palestine and just kind of do touristy stuff. Mm-hmm. But then when I got to Amman, Jordan, I met some people on their way to Palestine and they were telling all these stories that um, were just kind of more different than usual from what I'd been led to believe. And uh, I decided to, you know, check it out for myself. And I was going to go and stay for maybe three or four days just to, you know, say I'd seen it, um, end up living there for two years. Wow. I love so. it when people visit a place and they end up just settling in. You wrote in your book, yep. uh, This is What I Love About the Middle East. You never know what surprises await behind humble, unmarked doors. And apparently yes. you found that in Palestine. I did. You know, and funny, my very first entrance into the Palestinian territories was over actually a pile of garbage that had been piled in front of a road as a roadblock. I was like, oh, you know, this this looks pretty serious. You know, are they, are they going to see me as an enemy? And then as soon as I walked over the, the pile of garbage, there's a group of men and, and next to their taxis, and they're saying, assalamu alaikum, and just welcoming me. And, and, you know, the person I was traveling with, one of them offered us a free ride to where we were going. We didn't even have to pay. Is it just a matter of uh, taking a bus or hopping in a taxi or walking across the border to get from Israel to the Palestinian territories? Well, that's an excellent question. There's different ways you can try to get in. Um, I was kind of going in through an unauthorized access point where basically a car had to take me on a Israeli-only road. Mm-hmm. Um, it had Israeli license plates. And then I had to walk and get onto the Palestinian road, which was behind the roadblock. So that's one way to get in. Another way, you can take a bus you know, through checkpoints on Palestinian roads. So you can go from an Israeli road and just walk across and get onto the equivalent Palestinian road, and then it's just like you can hitchhike or hop in a cab or a bus. Well, I wouldn't say equivalent. They're very different levels of you know, being able to be Right, but maintained. it's a parallel road system. One would be Israeli and one would be Palestinian. With, right. Yeah. 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Pamela Olson about traveling and living in the West Bank in Palestinian territories. Now, we've got Israel. We've got occupied territories or Palestine or Palestinian territories. What's the terminology and what's the, what are the political um, pitfalls there? What are you supposed to call the area? Well, I guess for Westerners talking to other Westerners, you tend to say occupied Palestinian territories. Um, you wouldn't say Palestine in most sort of, I guess, mainstream places, mm-hmm. but, you know, Palestine is like Catalonia or... It's a state without a nation, or a nation yeah, without a state, yeah. And I, it's I, a state of mind as well. Like, you know, there's pockets right. of places that feel Palestinian or, or you know... But basically um, we got the tension there because there's two peoples have overlapping claims on the same land. Right, that's true. Palestinian territory is about the size of Rhode Island, pretty small. And then you've got Gaza, which is, no tourist would go there probably, which is a very difficult area. And then you've got West Bank, which everybody I talk to says once you get there, it's um, surprisingly accessible and enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I even took my parents there. My mother had never been out of the U.S. before. And I took her there, and, you know, her favorite place of all the places we visited in Israel and the Palestinian territories was Ramallah. So and describe was, this. Ra- Ramallah is the, the big city of, uh, of the Palestinian territory, as I understand. It's the, the capital, the business headquarters. There's lots of uh, software uh, companies there. Paint a picture of Ramallah. What do you see when you walk down the street in the, in the major, probably most uh, energetic city of, of Palestinian territories? Right. It's the de facto capital now because East Jerusalem is very inaccessible to Palestinians at the moment. It also, it's it's where all the foreign aid flows through and all the foreign aid workers. So it tends to be more westernized and, you know, there's bars and cafes and dance clubs and, and pools and kind of anything you, you can want if you can pay for it. Do you get the sense that there's a thriving economy there and a lot of local people that have money to go out and, and uh, have a nice time? Well, that's another good question because in, in some ways it's kind of a Potemkin village. Mm. There's money coming through from the foreign aid but it's not really building a sustainable economy. It's kind of, and it can be kind of cut off at any moment. So um, foreign foreign it, officials could go to Ramallah and think everything's fine and not get out into the countryside where they would see a more desperate economy. Exactly, and even within the Ramallah, there's you know a certain number of people who benefit from the money, and then there's people in the refugee camps nearby that it's not so much the case. And there's even people who, you know, they lived in the Ramallah all their lives, and now they can't afford the rent because of all these foreigners and, and foreign aid money coming in. What kind of commerce would you see on the streets when you walk down Ramallah? What, what's the energy on the streets? Um, the energy on the streets is it's very welcoming, for one thing. You know, everyone who comes, it's, it's kind of the, the first and most intense impression is how welcoming people are. And you see, you hear languages from all over the world. You know, you see people shopping at just like, you know, they have falafel stands and they have dress shops and they have coffee houses. As an expat, as a white American there in the middle of... Palestine, do you get that much disrespectful treatment, or do people generally respect you? Um, If you're walking down the road, specifically in Ramallah, and there's kind of a demographic of like 15 to 19-year-old boys who kind of feel like because, you know, your mother or your brother probably can't come and do anything about it, they can kind of, you know, make some catcalls. But um, I just think about like pigeons just cooing next to me, and I just don't, (laughs) I just ignore it completely. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Pamela Olson, who spent two years living in the West Bank. Her book is Fast Times in Palestine. Pamela, when you think about a uh, Palestinian struggle with, with Israel and everything, people think of it as a centuries-long struggle. But my understanding was, uh, you know, before the creation of Israel, long history of Jews and Christians and Muslims living in relative harmony. What's your take on that? So even today, like, you know, of course, there's Christians and uh, Muslims in Palestine. And there's also Jewish people. Uh, I, I had several Jewish friends who lived in Ramallah and even more Jewish and Israeli friends who visited. You know, people tend to paint this as a primarily religious conflict, and it's not the case at all. In fact, it's mostly about human rights and about resources. Um, hmm. yeah, you know, that's similar to Ireland. Everybody paints the Ireland struggle as Catholics versus Protestants. But when you get right down to it, it's not necessarily a religious struggle. In, in that case, like in, in, in the Holy Land, there's extremists on both sides, but there's a lot of people who just want to coexist and, and respect each other. Absolutely. Most people just want yeah, to coexist and respect right. each other. A lot of American Christians would be uh, sympathetic to the Jewish uh, perspective and the Jewish struggles, but they don't realize there's a lot of Christians in Palestine. In fact, there's a Christian community in Palestine that goes back to the time of Christ. 
Yeah, in, um, in Bethlehem and Beit Jala and even in Gaza, there are um, Christian communities. And there's another, there's a village near Ramallah called Taibe, which um, they have the only microbrewery in the Middle East. Hmm. And um, they sell their, their beer in Ramallah and in Bethlehem and even inside Israel as well. Would that be so, Christian run? Yes, Christian village. Pamela, just from a nitty-gritty point of view, uh, do you need a visa to go to the West Bank? Do you get your passport stamped, or is it? What are the what are the sensitivities? I know uh, a lot of people don't want to get a, a stamp of a Muslim country on their passport if they're going to Israel, or they don't want an Israeli stamp if they're going to a Muslim country. What's your advice? For an American or European, you don't really need a visa. Israel controls all the borders, including into the West Bank, and there's no separate West Bank, you know, visa or anything that you need. Um, it's up to Israel whether to let you in. My advice is, honestly, don't tell them at the border that you're going to the Palestinian territories because they tend to give you a much, much harder time. You mean at the border the when you enter Israel, like at the airport or something? Correct, at the airport okay. or at the, the border with Jordan, which is also controlled mm-hmm. by the Israelis. But once you're in Israel, then it's just like crossing another county. It's not going into another country from a passport point of view? Yes, there's no extra stamp. There's no, there's no problem. Um, actually, going in is usually fairly simple. The, the Israelis don't check you too much. But on you know on the way coming back out to Israel, then you'll have to stand in line, kind of like a you know an airport um, security checkpoint on steroids kind of thing. To get out of Palestinian territories, right, and to go back to Israel. When it comes to getting in and out of Israel, or getting in and out of Egypt or Turkey or other countries nearby, are you mm-hmm. wise not to have an Israeli stamp in your passport? Are you wise not to have an Egyptian stamp in your passport? Or does that matter anymore? Um, the Egyptian doesn't matter so much. You know, a Syrian or a Lebanese stamp is going to make it more difficult for you to get into Israel. And an Israeli stamp is going to make it impossible to get into Syria or Lebanon. Are the Israelis happy to stamp a piece of paper and put that in your passport if you hope to go to a Muslim country later? They usually are. I've actually never gotten an Israeli stamp in my passport. and I've been in and out maybe 30 times. Do you get a stamp on a piece of paper and you put that in your passport? Yes, exactly. And there's no reason not to do that, just to keep your options open when you want to possibly travel to a Muslim country later. Correct. Uh, I mean, they might give you a little bit of an extra questioning, but, mm-hmm. you know, just answer their questions. and. That's good to know. That was the case for me when I went to Israel, too. They stamped a piece of paper. I kept it in my passport, and then my passport was not marked with the fact that I've been Israel if by chance I wanted to go to a country that didn't like that. Just ahead, more on visiting the Palestinian territories with Pamela Olson, the author of Fast Times in Palestine, plus your calls at 877-333-7425. And later in the hour, Phil Kogan of The Amazing Race tells us about some pretty amazing adventures of his own. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Shalom, shalom. Ani Martin Fletcher in Tel Aviv, and Mr. Vevim Rick Steves. That was Hebrew for I'm Martin Fletcher in Tel Aviv, and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Koimli Martin Fletcher in Tel Aviv, and Mr. Vevim Rick Steves. We're making plans to travel to the West Bank in Israel with a little help from Pamela Olson right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She's the author of Fast Times in Palestine, 
which describes how she ended up living for two years in Ramallah. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Pamela, Jerusalem has been a sacred city for Jews for 3,000 years, for Christians for 2,000 years, and about 1,400 years for Muslims. A lot of strife arises from the conflicting desires of Israeli Jews and Muslim Palestinians, to name it their capital. Well, for Jews, obviously, it's, you know, they believe the Temple Mount is where the original temples were built. For Christians, you know, they believe that uh, Jesus Christ visited Jerusalem and and did many of his ministries and also his crucifixion in the city. For Muslims, you know, they originally actually prayed toward Jerusalem because it's the holy city from, you know, they they call Christians and Jews the people of the book, and they essentially believe that they're the next in line of those same prophets. So Jerusalem is very holy to them as well. And of course, the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque are some of the most holy sites for Islam in the world. And these holy sites are almost literally on top of each other, so it's oh, a yeah, complicated <laughs> situation. I know that you're, there's this um, depopulation of Palestinians in former Palestinian East Jerusalem. Does it still have a Palestinian vibe, or is that no longer the case? Oh, absolutely. The overwhelming vibe is, is Palestinian, um, and you just have pockets of Israelis. And then, of course, you have settlements, which are like little gated communities that are closed off from, you know, from the Palestinian areas around them. Within East um, Jerusalem. So you've got the settlement issue within Jerusalem as well as within the West Bank. Same kind of thing going on. Correct. All right. But you do have a, still a sense when you do go to Jerusalem, even if you're not planning on going into the West Bank, a visitor could get that, um, the Palestinian dimension, the Muslim dimension of the city by going into East Jerusalem. Is that safe and comfortable to go to? It's safe and comfortable, relatively speaking. Ironically enough, I feel a lot more safe and comfortable in the West Bank because the tensions aren't so in your face. Right. It's still safe, of course, to go to, to East Jerusalem. I mean, there's, there's isolated crimes and problems, but it's not any worse, I would say, than New York City, especially for yeah. a foreigner. If you're a Palestinian, it's different, but for a foreigner, it's not, you know, nobody's targeting you. If you're just walking on the back streets of East Jerusalem, I, I get the sense you're going to find just fascination around every corner. Uh, cobbles, stories, mosques, souks, little markets. Take us on a little walk through East Jerusalem. Gosh, where do you start? Um, I guess where I started with my parents was I took them to the um, Jerusalem Hotel, which is not far from the Jerusalem Old City. Um, and we just had an evening of, you know, mezze, which are the, the little plates of salads and chicken and sheep's brains and whatever else, you know, they yeah, hummus and tabbouleh. And there was an oud player, the lute, uh, playing the lute, and a drummer. And they were playing while we were singing and people, I mean, while we were eating, and people were smoking argile, which is the hookah. And a woman just spontaneously got up out of her seat and started dancing. And the whole place was clapping. And it was just like, my mm. parents were like, man, I can see why you love this place. I love it. Yeah, that reminds me of Cairo or Istanbul almost. It's got that energy. Yeah, it's fantastic. So there's a, it's a good idea to, to roam around the back streets of East Jerusalem. Now, a lot of tourists, they're going to make a, a little side trip to Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, mm-hmm. while everybody thinks of it as a Christian place, is actually uh, a Palestinian and a Muslim city. And uh, it's in the West Bank, but tour buses will just sort of make a beeline to Bethlehem. People see uh, the church on Manger Square, the church in the Nativity, you know, have a lunch, buy a souvenir, get back on their bus and go straight back into Israel. Is that your take on tourism in Bethlehem? That's the general take, yeah. It is it is a majority Muslim place now because of the refugees from 1948 that have come in. But um, it still maintains a very Christian presence and a very Christian vibe. And, and of course, a good portion of the population is Christian. And um, it's also, you know, people drink, people dance. It's like... Um, so it's a Christian definitely. enclave in the middle of uh, Muslim West Bank. Yeah, yeah, I guess you can say that. Now, as a Christian um, uh, tourist, you'd go there and you'd want to see the Church of the Nativity, and you can actually um, touch the spot where baby Jesus was supposed to be born. Is is that the, the ritual for a Christian visitor? That's one of the rituals, yeah. And then there's the Shepherd's Fields, um, which have some beautiful little churches, and the Milk Grotto, where the Virgin Mary supposedly spilled some milk. And, um, you know, just when you, when you just meet the people, um, and you just go into shops and, and you'll start talking to people and they'll tell you they're life story and they'll say hey do you need a cab and then they'll you know and then they'll invite you to dinner and then it's just like it's it's very charming if you just come in with the bus and then take off immediately you're really missing a lot you know i was just thinking that i mean probably 90 percent of the western visitors to bethlehem come in with the bus 
do their little sightseeing, do their shopping, have a coffee, and then get back on the bus and go away. Never even talk to any of the people there, and there's a real community there. I'm speaking with Pamela Olson. She writes Fast Times in Palestine after living and working in the West Bank for two years. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Debbie's on the phone from Portland, Oregon. Debbie, thanks for your call. Hello. Hi, Debbie. Yeah, I, I was just going to comment. I, I had gone to Palestine in 2007 and in 2009, and there's so many things I can mention. That uh, The one thing I thought was very interesting was the, the last kafia factory in Hebron. The kafias mostly are made in China now, so there's one factory that used to work uh, 24-7, seven days a week, and three shifts, and now they only work maybe 40 hours a week. But if you do go, the kafias there are beautiful. There's the traditional black and white, like like so many of us know. They also have them in hundreds of different colors and combinations, hmm. and they're so pretty. So this would be the the headdress that Yasser Arafat made famous, the black and white headdress. Is that right, Pamela? Yes, the kafias, uh, exactly. So Debbie is saying that that would be a, an interesting thing to do in Hebron. Hebron is just a, a short bus ride away, just a few miles south of Bethlehem. And mm-hmm. it's it's famous for its handiwork, its uh, pottery, and uh, it's a very Muslim place. It's the burial site of Abraham. Debbie, when you were in, in uh, Hebron, were you just on your own or with a tour guide? Uh, no, I was with a group, and one time we went to the factory. It had already been arranged. I, I believe there's only one Casillas factory left, but it, it was a group that um, did alternative tours so you could see specialized on fair trade, and so that's why we went to Abraham to the... Hmm. The Sea Factory. We also went to uh, up by Denine's, the Palestinian Fair Trade Association, and we went to co-ops where women did handiwork. And we emphasized the tour was on on fair trade. And was it a good experience for you? Oh yes, it was a wonderful experience. The the people were so nice and so welcoming, and we, we had time on our own. We had time on our own. Strangers would come up to you and just want to talk to you, and and they'd want you to come in to have tea or coffee to talk to you, to tell them they want to tell you their story because they want you to go home and share the story. Debbie, I'm telling my friends I'm planning a trip to the West Bank, Palestinian territories, and they kind of go, you're kidding, are you, are you sure it's safe? Uh, did you feel you were safe in the West Bank? I, I never felt unsafe except for around checkpoints when there was um, a lot of the soldiers, the, the Israeli defense force, they have these machine guns. And that kind of made me, I'm not used to being around people with machine guns. <laughs> right. All right. Thank you, Debbie, for reporting, and, and uh, best wishes in your future travels. I'm going to check out that Kafia factory when I go to Hebron. Oh, that's great. Yeah, you should. Okay, bye. Thank you. Bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Pamela Olson. Her book is Fast Times in Palestine. Pamela, if somebody's going to be going to the Holy Land and doing all the predictable stuff in Israel and they want to get four or five days in the West Bank, where would Mm -hmm. you make a uh, home base and uh, what would you do with your time in four or five days? What cities would you visit? What what activities would would you do? If you just want to do the, not to do a political tour to learn about the problem so much, but just to humanize the area and understand the culture and its heritage better. That's kind of what I did with my parents. I did kind of a five-day tour in uh, the Palestinian territories and five days in Israel. You know, we started in East Jerusalem, and we went to Bethlehem, and we tried to go to the Dead Sea, but actually we were blocked by an Israeli soldier who said our cab did not have the proper license plates. Mm-hmm. Um, but I recommend that. And so we went to Jericho after that, and there's um, in Jericho there's a thing called the Hisham Palace, it's like in the desert, and it's you know ruins of a fantastic palace, including some mosaics, like the famous one of uh, the lion killing the gazelle under the uh, mm. pomegranate tree. And also there's a mosaic factory at mm. that, that palace. And we visited the proprietor there, and he was so proud because Laura Bush had just visited mm. and donated money, and he showed us you know photos on his cell phone of, of Laura Bush visiting. Nice. And then I definitely recommend Ramallah, the city where I lived, and I love it. It's probably actually a good entry point. Would you make Ramallah it, or Bethlehem your home base where you would actually have a hotel? Well, you probably want to do one of each. So, okay. you you know, you want to do Ramallah for two mm-hmm. or three days, and then also you can visit 
preferably a village if you can. There's so many amazingly charming villages, especially um, in the spring. They're absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And in the fall, they're harvesting olives. Mm. And in, in both cases, it's such a it's so much fun. And what about Nablus in the north? Yeah, Nablus is definitely 100% worth a visit. And, you know, the villages around it and uh, Janine, if you want to go, and Tubas is this place that nobody knows about. But it, um, you know, the way I describe it, in the spring, it looks like the, the label on a Hidden Valley ranch dressing. It's so oh, green nice. and so beautiful. So spring is the yeah. best time to go, probably. Yeah, absolutely. And this is close together. I mean, you could settle down in Ramallah or at Bethlehem, and then if you had a driver or a, a taxi, you could get anywhere within an hour, probably. Yeah, absolutely. Or is that true uh, with mean, all the checkpoints and stuff? Can you can you get around uh, fluidly as, as a Westerner well, there? As a Westerner, um, you don't need permits to go between the different regions of the West Bank, so it's fairly easy. And as long as there are not too many flying checkpoints, and from my understanding these days, there are not very many flying checkpoints, and that just means that's just I'm random an army checkpoints, jeep. Just somebody stopping yeah, in the just, middle of nowhere. Now, as a Westerner, would you just show your passport and they go, oh, you're okay? Yeah, pretty much. Wow. And the Dead Sea, of course, is a huge tourist attraction, and uh, you know, half of it is part of the West Bank and half of it is part of, of Israel, but does Israel control the coastline of the Dead Sea, or are there um, West Bank resorts on the Dead Sea? Well, the entire Jordan River Valley and the entire, you know, part of the coastline of the Dead Sea, so the entire mm-hmm. essentially eastern part of the West Bank, mm-hmm. is pretty much controlled by Israel. It's called Area C, mm-hmm. which means Israeli administrative and uh, security control. Mm-hmm. So if you have a Palestinian um, license plate, it's difficult or impossible to go. But you can find ways to, if you can manage to get a car with Israeli plates, then you can go, you can visit so Israeli no, plates would be better if you can swing that somehow. Yeah, yeah. All right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Pamela Olson about fast times in Palestine. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Ed is calling in from Manassas, Virginia. Ed, thanks for your call. Oh, thanks, Rick. Yeah. Uh, hi, Pamela. Hi. I had the, the uh, privilege of uh, living a couple years in Israel at the uh, American Embassy in Tel Aviv. Uh, this goes mm-hmm. back six or seven years uh, when things were a little more tense at, at the time. But I was told by one of my predecessors before I left that uh, despite all the the back and forth between the Palestinians and the Israelis, that uh, he said if the Israelis didn't have the Palestinians, they wouldn't know what to do. And if the Palestinians didn't have the Israelis, they wouldn't know what to do, i.e., they, they were sort of codependent in a, in a way, you know, someone else to kick around, but they wouldn't know what to do if... If they they weren't there, I, can you have any comment on on that sort of outlook? Uh, an Israeli cab driver uh, verified to me that that yes, that was true at least as far as he was concerned. Um, well, you know, I can't really speak for either side. It's easy to make jokes like that, and I'm sure you know both sides make a lot of dark jokes. But I think both sides definitely yeah. do not, you know, would definitely prefer peace if possible. Well, I, I agree, I, and, and I'm sure it was a joke. Uh, but I know they they do have a history going back, you know thousands of years and uh, it's, it's I think it might get be a, around that it might be a so, comment on how much they have in common I bet I bet there's more in common than I, a lot I of people think, realize I think that's true Rick yeah right absolutely well a beautiful thing and I've I've talked to Israelis about this and they're happy if uh, if there's more tourism in the West Bank and that'll help their economy and I think it's really important that Americans can go to the West Bank and just humanize the place because uh, there's a beautiful culture there that's as Pamela is reminding us to go there You'll be amazed at how comfortable you feel when mm. you're out and about just making friends with the people, whether they're in the West Bank or in Israel. Ed, thanks for your call. Okay, thank you. Pamela, if we're thinking about traveling and, and just sort of living in the West Bank as a, as a temporary local person or just trying to get in touch with the culture, talk just for a minute about um, heritage centers and uh, handicrafts. What, what would we look at to see uh, people, you know, their livelihoods and their culture? Um, well, certainly the Kofia factory in um, in Hebron is a good place to start. There's mm-hmm. also uh, glassworks in Hebron that are mm-hmm. famous. Um, in Nablus, they have the soap factories, the olive oil soap factories. Mm-hmm. Of course, everywhere you go, people are selling vegetables and uh, falafel and shawarma. There's restaurants with fantastic homemade Palestinian food. My favorite restaurant in the West Bank is called Al Falaha, which means the farmer woman. And it's just north of Ramallah, kind of out in the countryside. And they have one dish exactly called msakhan which is a whole chicken roasted on top of chewy flatbread with um, caramelized onions and sumac and toasted almonds and pine nuts over the top of it. That sounds and good. What you, is that again? Masahan. Masahan. All right. So that's, yep. that's bread with chicken and what else? Um, onions, like kind of uh, mm-hmm. 
sauteed into oblivion with sumac Mm -hmm. and olive oil and then toasted pine nuts and almonds on top. And you don't even order. You just sit down and they bring (laughs) it to you. That sounds so good. The the name of that place again? El Falaha, the farmer woman. And it's a little bit north of Ramallah. Mm -hmm. You just have to get in a cab and say the word and that's and I'll take you there. (laughs) The farmer woman. And then uh, Mm -hmm. a couple of other local specialties we should be sure to eat while we're there. What would you recommend we know about? Well, my favorite is called maklube, which uh, it literally means upside down because it's taken out of the oven and then flipped upside down. Mm -hmm. And it's rice that's kind of plumped with broth and spices and cinnamon. And um, inside is like fried potatoes and eggplants and onions and chicken. And you eat it with either yogurt or with um, salad, which Mm. in, in Palestine, salad means chopped up cucumbers and tomatoes with lemon and olive oil. Mm. All right. It's nice to know there's some good cuisine to check out. And then I think probably a a critical dimension of your visit, one of the most important things, if not the most important thing, is just meeting people. I'm hanging out Mm. in Ramallah. What's my best way to to meet some uh, local people? Well, there's several coffee houses and restaurants where you're going to meet some fantastic people. My favorite is called Pronto. It's an Italian place. Um, It overlooks Ramallah's City Hall Park, and you can get, you know, cheesecake and cappuccino and pizza and, you know, just sort of strike up a conversation. There's a veranda, which is really nice, nice, and and people are pretty open. And if one of our listeners is thinking, I'd like to go to the West Bank and check it out, and they're going to go to Ramallah, um, Mm -hmm. what's the, are people going to be approaching them with a happy kind of curiosity, or is there going to be sort of a wariness about, like, what's this American doing here? Well, it's funny. There's a there's like an aura around people who clearly don't know what they're doing. And those are the people that get this big welcome of people being so <laughs> kind. And I was almost sad when that kind of wore off for me and I just became another person walking down the street. Yeah, it, it's a very welcoming place. You, you're going to have a good time. I get a huge welcome when I'm in a little town with no tourists in Turkey. I got the mm. warmest welcome I can remember when I was in Iran. And I expect mm. I'm going to get a similar welcome when I go to the West Bank. Absolutely. Pamela Olson. Fast Times in Palestine. Great book. Thank you so much for um, sharing your experience in a place that is well worth visiting in person. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Next, TV host Phil Kogan joins us to tell us about his adventures and how a near-death experience at age 19 influenced his desire to travel and to define the adventures he still wants to have. Come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The host of CBS TV's long-running reality travel show, The Amazing Race, has some pretty remarkable exploits of his own under his belt. After Phil Kogan nearly drowned at age 19, he decided to make a life list of adventures he hoped to experience. Beyond The Amazing Race, Phil also hosted a TV series called No Opportunity Wasted, and that's also the name of a book he's co-authored with Warren Berger. In it, he outlines how to create a list for the life you want, and he encourages us to face our fears, to go ahead and get lost, test our limits, and shed our inhibitions. Phil, that sounds like a pretty good way to travel to me. Thanks for being with us again here on Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for having me on. Tell us about this near-death experience you had at age 19 and how that led you to this book and TV show called No Opportunity Wasted. Well, I first got involved in working in television when I was 18 and was lucky enough to have the opportunity to work in front of a camera when I was 19. And it was during the first show that I ever hosted that I had this near-death experience uh, about 120 feet down inside a shipwreck that was uh, in the Marlborough Sounds in New Zealand. And I guess when you're 19, you really don't think of dying. You think you're going to live forever. I certainly never considered the idea that I would die. And I found myself separated from my dive buddy in a, in a shipwreck. The shipwreck was uh, on its starboard side. I was completely disorientated. I was in a big uh, bowl room area inside the ship. I had no idea where up and down was. I had no idea how to get out. And it was the first time in my life 
being, you know, isolated there, that I really realized that I could die. So you, you were alone, it was murky, it was silent, and you were realizing you might, this might be your last moment on Earth right there. Yeah, what happened was we were going down to meet a uh, film crew. The, the film crew was coming in from another entrance so we didn't stir up all the silt. And my dive buddy and I were going in to the ballroom to meet them from another entrance. And there was quite a strong current going through the ship. And again, with the, the ship being on its starboard side, you, you're completely disorientated. And I didn't know any better in terms of having a, a line connected to the outside in case I did get separated from my dive buddy or I didn't know my way out. And we had talked before we did the dive that we would be turning off our lights to save the battery power. So, and I'm terribly claustrophobic, but of course, being 19, I didn't say anything because I felt like I had to be a man and just face up to it. So uh, we're down there with our lights off in the dark. And um, after waiting a few minutes, we don't see the crew. So he flicks on his light and he holds it under his face a little bit like, you know, at Halloween where you hold the light underneath your face to look scary and disappeared. And I suddenly found myself in the dark underwater in this shipwreck and basically freaked out. I, I, I didn't know why it left me. I didn't understand. I didn't know where I was. Mm. I was overcome with claustrophobia. And in my efforts to find my own light to turn it on, I stirred up all the silt around me. And by the time I got the light on, it was hitting all the particles in the water. I'd completely stirred up every, <laughs> oh, wow. every little particle in the water around me, and I had no idea where I was. I'd let go of the table that I was holding on to, so I knew that I wasn't where he left me. The current was sort of moving me, and um, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know whether to look for the exit, and we're talking about a shipwreck that's as big as, if you remember, the love boat. You know, it's a 40,000-ton shipwreck, So, and I knew people had died on that ship before, they got caught in the current and been separated and died. And I'm 120 feet down, so I'm breathing so fast that I'm actually beating the valve on the regulator and sucking in water. And it was a major panic. He ended up coming back and got me out of there, and obviously I got through the experience. But that led me to think, okay, <laughs> now it's time to write down all the things I want to do before I die. And mm. that's my list of things to do before I die that I then called No Opportunity Wasted or now, N-O-W, for short, and I decided right there and then at 19, I would use that list as the catalyst or a life contract to make sure that I lived life to the fullest. So that made you prematurely wise, you could say. I mean, I, I enjoyed reading yeah. in your book how you, you thought of, uh, as a 19-year-old might, the silly uh, headline, Man Drowns in Shipwreck Two Years Later. Yeah, yeah, really, it was a wake-up call. It was, okay, this is not a dress rehearsal, you could die, and just because you're 19 doesn't mean that you can't die. Life is short. Live it. Get out there and do all the things you want to do. And in, in a way, I feel blessed that it happened because it really made me think, well, if I could turn this list, all the things that I've identified that I really want to do, if I could turn that list into my career, then that would be the ultimate life. I'd be getting paid to do the things I want to do. So I set about creating television shows from a very early age. I sold my first television show when I was 22 and traveled around the world doing pieces about thrill seekers. I was obsessed with this whole idea of getting that feeling back. The feeling that I got being alive after getting through this experience, I thought that that's what I needed to strive for, that I needed to go after that again. It was almost like an addictive uh, feeling that I, I thought, well, if I risk life and limb and I come through the other side then I will experience this high, the high that I felt when I knew I was alive after the shipwreck. Um, obviously, maturity is, uh, has taught me that that's really not such a great idea because there's a pretty good chance that you could die. And I also realized with maturity that what I was looking for was not the feeling of risking life and limb, but really about experiencing new and different things. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Phil Kogan, and Phil's well-known as the host and the co-producer of The Amazing Race. I understand, Phil, you were considered as the host of Survivor, and you ended up being the host of The Amazing Race. Has that been a better fit for you, do you think? I think so. Um, the television world was very different when I was up for Survivor. I'm a New Zealander. My accent has uh, changed a little bit, but I've spent my life living around the world and so my accent is pretty mixed up but when I was going for Survivor I had a very New Zealand accent and 
it was not really commonplace to have anybody with an accent on a network television show. Right. So it was of great concern, the idea that a New Zealander would be on uh, on a show like Survivor. There was no Nigel Lithgow. There was no, so you think you can dance, or you know, there was no <laughs> Simon Cowell. There was no, there basically was no accent in network television. And uh, so they took quite a while to make up their mind. It was between Jeff Probst and I. He obviously got the job. And a, a few months later, I was shortlisted again for this other show called The Amazing Race. I was down to three, and then I was down to two, and then the same concerns came up again. Well, do you think you can Americanize your accent? So I ended up starting that first season having to Americanize my accent. Well, ironically now, 11 years later, I think people would probably, you know, wouldn't mind the New Zealand accent, but I can't really change it, and I've spent <laughs> so much time over the years changing it. <laughs> You know, Phil, in your book, No Opportunity Wasted, I love the sidebar where you just list, oh, the things I've done. And this is sort of an inspiration to me, and I would imagine to a lot of our listeners. Give us just a quick um, report on each of these experiences as I go through them, if you don't mind. Played speed golf in the deadly Australian outback. <laughs> yeah, I, I went to a really fascinating place called Coobapiti in the outback of Australia, and I spent some time with a uh, with an opal miner. That's the opal capital of the world. And after spending some time with him, he said, oh, do you want to come and play golf? And I said, sure. And he said, well, we play speed golf here because it's so hot. We haven't got time to be walking around the golf course for too long. So we just get it over and done with as fast as we possibly can. There was actually no grass on the golf course. So you take your own little piece of grass. It's a piece of AstroTurf. And wherever you find your ball, you put it on the AstroTurf and then you hit it. I actually ended up suggesting that as a challenge for the Amazing Race. We went back in season two, and we went into the Opal Mines, and uh, we had the teams play speed golf. <laughs> ah, I was going to ask you if any of your, uh, you know, no opportunity wasted has impacted your choice of uh, challenges on the Amazing Race. It, this is really a fun list. Renewed your wedding vows underwater with a scuba diving priest and a dolphin in attendance. Yeah, well, after being married for five years, I really wanted to do something different. So I went in search of a scuba diving priest. Kind of difficult to find, actually. Um, but anyway, found one. Could you hear each other? How, how did you communicate under, underwater? Well, we had comms. We had comms so we could communicate. And that's what attracted these wild dolphins, because ah. they could hear us talking underwater, and they were attracted by the sounds. And my best man was a guy by the name of uh, Banana George, who is a barefoot water skier. And uh, he dropped the, the rings from about uh, 50 feet to us. And they came down, and my wife and I were dressed up. I had a suit on, and she had her uh, veil, and, and we renewed our vows right in front of the dolphins and the priest. Dolphins throwing rice? Uh, I wish. Okay, another point. You did change a light bulb on top of New York's 700-foot-tall Verrazano Bridge. Well, yes. For five years, I worked on a live television show, and my boss... He basically said to me, listen, I just want you to come up with stories that will get headlines that will become water cooler talk. So just think of anything and we, you know, I'll, I'll give you the resources and you can go and shoot it. So I went about doing things like jumping in the shark tank at Coney Island to clean the inside of the tank with the guy who has to actually get in the shark tank to clean the tank. And another idea came to me once when I was sitting having a beer down at Battery Park and I looked up at the flashing light on top of the Verrazano Bridge and I thought, well... Who changes the light bulb up there? Somebody's got to change it. So Monday morning, I was up there with a guy, and um, we never actually got to change the light bulb because it was live TV, and the cameraman, who was a big 270-pound guy, played football, freaked out. He was going down the cable you know, 700 feet above the, above the bridge there, and as we were making our way down the cable, this big, burly, 270-pound football-playing cameraman uh, freaked out. And so I used to be a cameraman. That was my first job before when I first started in television. So I ended up grabbing the camera off his shoulder and shooting the story about how he was freaking out. <laughs> We're talking with Phil Kogan. He's the host of The Amazing Race, and he's written a book called No Opportunity Wasted, talking about he was inspired by a near-death experience to make sure we embrace life. And on Phil's list of, oh, the things I've done, ski behind a reindeer at 30 miles an hour. Yeah, I always thought it would be cool if you were ever in a pub and the conversation died down, you could say, hey, would you like to see my reindeer racing license? And I could just pull it out of my wallet and say, here you go. <laughs> Reindeers actually run 30 miles an hour and they can pull a human on skis? Yes, and they kill people too because you're going through trees a lot of times. And so yeah. sometimes they accidentally pull you into a tree and that's it. Where was that, Phil? 
Uh, that was actually in Finland, uh, just out of Kemi. And I could put that on my list. I want to ski behind a reindeer. Okay, slept in a tree in the Costa Rican jungle. Yes, uh, in the Los Angeles cloud forest. We were swinging through the trees, and um, we just thought, how cool would it be to wake up in the middle of the jungle and uh, have fresh Costa Rican coffee delivered to us? So that's what we set up. Was that with zip lining? Yeah. And they've got those little, they're like the floor of a treehouse up there at the, where the zip lines hit the tree, and you're just yeah. surrounded in an, it's an otherworldly experience. Great idea. About 70 feet up on a little platform, hmm. uh, barely enough room to lie down, but uh, extraordinary to wake up to the sounds of the jungle. In a nice cup of Costa Rican coffee. Oh, yeah. White water rafted the Jordan River of Israel. You know, that was, uh, we'd just come down from Masada. We had a little bathe in the Dead Sea, and uh, we thought, wow, it'd be kind of cool to just say we went white water rafting down the Jordan River. It wasn't much white water, but we were able to tick it off the list. But bobbing in the Dead Sea, now that's fun. Did you actually read a newspaper? I, I was amazed at how buoyant you can be uh, relaxing in the Dead Sea. Yeah, the, the you know, it's just a classic shot, you know. That Arms I, I and feet the mud, all you know? out of the water at the same time. Yeah, yeah, unbelievable. But if you have a single little scratch, it can be pretty painful. Oh, yeah, it stings like crazy. <laughs> Won a cow patty throwing competition. What, tossing a cow patty 174 feet? Yeah, 53 meters. I believe that's what it works out to. And um, Who caught it? Uh, oh, nobody caught it. But it was frozen. It was oh, okay. it was in the middle of winter, so thankfully it was a frozen piece. Frozen cow patty chucking. And where yeah. where was that? That was in Queenstown, the adventure capital of the world and uh, in New Zealand. Was spiritually cleansed by a witch doctor in Asia's Golden Triangle. Uh, took a motorbike for uh, a show that I did called Phil Kogan's Adventure Crazy and uh, went up into the Golden Triangle and we stayed with a family... This woman cooked the most extraordinary meal with a machete, uh, one machete. That was it. That was all she had. And uh, we went and found the the man with the world's longest hair, and we ended up in an opium den. <laughs> uh, we had no idea what the smoke was until we realized that we didn't realize that we were in an opium den, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> How long was his hair? 18 feet. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was in the Guinness Book of World Records. Found out about him. We had to go hunt him out. It, it took us a couple of days to find him. And then hunted a giant rat in a Venezuelan rainforest. Yeah, Capivara. I, I thought it would be kind of cool to live with a tribe uh, just uh, near where the Tepius Mountains are in Venezuela. And so we got a dugout canoe, went up river, and we just randomly found a, a, a tribe of people living there and asked if we could stay there and basically just live like they did for a few days. So it was a very unique experience. <laughs> and, you know, you seem like quite a romantic guy. I mean, your wife probably thinks, what's Phil going to come up with next? But on one of your lists, you've got have a gourmet romantic dinner with your wife, Louise, on top of an erupting volcano, Stromboli. Have you done that yet? Yeah, it didn't end up being uh, with my wife. Oh, no. Yeah, well, I've always been fascinated with Stromboli, which is in the Aeolian Sea, and where Isabella Rossellini was born. And I I have always wanted to go there. I saw it in National Geographic magazine when I was a kid. I had it on my list. And and I thought if I'm going to go there, I don't want to just do it in an ordinary way. I want to do it in an extraordinary way. So I managed to convince a chef who was almost 300 pounds to take everything we needed to cook a five-star dinner on top of the volcano, time it with the sun setting. So he was picking up fresh oregano and fresh herbs and everything as we went up. He dug a hole in the volcano when we got to the top and cooked a dinner. We had our dinner suits with us. We had helmets because there was flying debris. We took great bottles of wine, beautiful balsamic vinegar, and we cooked the scoffino fish, which is the indigenous fish of the area, up on the volcano. And then after uh, polishing off a few bottles of wine, we got water skis, and we actually skied 3,000 feet from the top of the volcano under moonlight down to the bottom. Good for uh, down you. Down the volcanic ash. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Now, these are the little tiny islands just north of Sicily, right? Yes, Aeolian Islands. Uh, if you remember that film, El Postino, they shot uh, there. Yeah, beautiful spot. Yeah. I'm curious... Uh, on your amazing race uh, as you're hosting, you always have a pendant around your neck. What's the story with that? When I first left New Zealand to come overseas to work in television in America, I was given my first Maori fishhook, and it was made out of greenstone. The idea with greenstone is that you shouldn't buy it for yourself. It's something that somebody gives to you. This is a Maori uh, hook. Maori, yeah, Maori uh, fishhook meaning the indigenous people in New Zealand. The indigenous people in New Zealand, exactly. And the woman who gave it to me was Moana Maniapoto Jackson, who I had hosted a show with. 
And people wear this as a way to protect themselves when they're overseas, when they travel overseas or over water. It's really what it symbolizes. And so that was in 1992, and I have continued wearing a Māori fishhook around my neck ever since. And uh, it's actually based on the original practical Māori fishhook that was used to catch fish. So I, uh, I've worn it on Amazing Race ever since, and I, I uh, have had all different types, and people have sent them to me from around the world. I have quite a collection. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Phil Kogan, and we're talking about no opportunity wasted. And if you've had a near-death experience like he had at 19, you get this vivid understanding that you've got to embrace life or it's going to pass you by. Phil Kogan, you are an inspiration for all of us travelers, whether we're on your amazing race or whether we're on our own amazing race. Thanks so much and best wishes in all you're doing. Thank you so much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks to our colleagues at NPR West in Culver City, California, and the Radio Foundation in New York for their help today. Our technical team includes Andrew Wakeling, Jonathan Lee, Chris Luzek, and Kate Mulhern-Graham. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. There's more online as Phil Kogan talks about his long-distance bicycle adventures and his plans for entering this year's Tour de France. You can hear that from a link in this week's show details. That's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.